0: This is Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, and each episode, I'll be joined by world-renowned faculty from across the College of Business, as well as international industry leaders who will offer us insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. <laughs> Welcome back to another edition of Business Impact. And if I put the words accountancy and invention together in the same sentence, would you think they were comfortable bedfellows or not? (laughs) Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. It's very much a subjective idea. But we don't necessarily, because of various stereotypes and what we've learned over the years and our own professional career journeys and so on, we don't necessarily see the world of accountancy as something that produces new thinking or produces new inventions but it actually does. And it's doing it increasingly in a whole range of new technical frontiers. And on this podcast, I think for probably about two years now, we are based out of a business school. We haven't done a lot of accountancy. We haven't looked at the profession. We haven't looked what it does. We haven't looked how it measures, tracks, records, uh, various transactions and how that information is then used that often, mainly because we, Right, wrongly, but we sometimes see it as a somewhat static area and um, that doesn't change from year to year. There are some basic bedrocks in place there that mean it doesn't necessarily change. But that is totally wrong. It is totally wrong. And my guest today is going to shed a little bit of light on the kind of new thinking and new forms of technical advancement that are going on within accountancy more generally. And that guest is John McCallick. He is an assistant professor here at the UCD College of Business, where he teaches financial accounting financial statement analysis and accounting technology and it's particularly that last set of words that we're going to be zoning in on today in the podcast. He joined UCD all of 29 years ago after becoming a member of both the Chartered Accountants of Ireland, SEMA and working with Ernst & Young as an auditor and his research career began with PhD students at Lancaster University. His thesis and subsequent research focused on the relationship between stock market returns and accounting numbers but more recently he's become interested in how We can use cryptography in business systems and how that might enable us to produce better data for decisions by investors, regulators and the public. Now, we will be throwing a lot of interesting terms, novel terms at you during this podcast, but myself and John are going to try and pick our way through those. And the ultimate destination we're hoping to arrive at is, at the end, understanding some of these terms and where they fit into the world of accountancy and also technology and uh, innovation more generally. So I better welcome him to the podcast. John McCallagher, very welcome along. Thanks very much, Emmett. It's great to have you. You recently won an award just in the last few weeks, the 2022 NOVA UCD Invention of the Year Award. As I said, we'll walk through what you were awarded, the work, where it might go, what it looks like, etc. in a few minutes. But before we get to any of that, we always like to start the podcast with some personal reflections, people's careers, their, their lives, where they've been before, where they're going to, etc. So you come from Claire Morris. Uh, how did you get into accountancy? Because it's often some somewhat of an accidental profession for a lot of people. They like some parts of it, less interest in other parts, but they kind of move into it because of certain parts. Just tell me a little bit how you got into accountancy and how you've sort of bolted on the, the technology part as well.
1: Well, I guess, Emmett, um, I, had a, I had a very inspiring accountancy teacher when I was in secondary school in in, in Morris, a, a man called Pascal Mullins, and he uh, certainly pushed me in that direction. The other thing was, I, I do remember being in, in Eason's bookstore once with my, my parents and picking up this little book called The Gospel According to the Harvard Business School, uh, and, and this book was written, I'd say, in the mid-1970s by somebody who'd done an MBA in Harvard. And, and uh, I read this book. It's a bit of an oddity. I don't think you could, you'd find it nowadays. It was all about what they had taught the students in Harvard, the way they were modeling business decisions using, you know, decision trees and introducing all these new ideas into um, uh, the way uh, business was done. And I was fascinated by this. This was obviously very different to, you know, leaving search accountancy in the mid-1980s. And I, I decided then I think that business was something that I wanted to um, wanted to get involved in. And at the time, accountancy was a very logical way into that world. Um, it's it, if you, People forget now, but I mean, the 1980s in Ireland was not a time... Of 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 particular prosperity, and you had to you 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 had to worry about what your employment prospects were going to be. Uh, there was none of this kind of dream big. And I, I guess the other thing was, I was very interested in computers as well. My parents had uh, had uh, very uh, kindly bought me a computer uh, when I was about eleven or twelve, and a ZX eighty one Sinclair computer. And I really had 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 used that computer to the nth degree. Uh, That computer had had one K of RAM. That's a thousand and (laughs) twenty four. A thousand and twenty four places that you could store things. I I was trying to visualize this the other day for students. And uh, basically, if you if you try and visualize it with the RAM I have in my computer now, it just disappears as a spec. It it just becomes so (laughs) small you can't see it glorified calculator right (laughs) exactly oh i mean you're you know even a nokia mobile phone was 10 times more um uh uh, powerful uh, hundreds of times more powerful than this thing but it got me interested in all of that and i had an idea i wanted to combine business computers i was also quite good at maths and and the whole modeling thing was attractive uh, so i decided to do a bcom at um nuig um it was called ucg back then um which I, I i found very developmental in all sorts of ways both the academic way and also i was very into debating and college life and i had a great great three years there um uh, and and after that then i uh, i i got a job with ernst and young and uh, made my way to Dublin. I I did the diploma in professional accountancy in UCD, uh, which is a precursor to the program we now have the the MAC, uh, mm. and that was that was pretty much a baptism of fire into <laughs> into the world of accountancy. It's it's I think it's a little bit gentler nowadays, but um, uh, that was a very intense program. You learned a, a lot of accountancy. In a, in a short period of time um, and I ended up a lot of the people who taught me in that program became my colleagues later on when I when I joined uh, uh, UCD.
0: And actually one of the reasons that there is a connection and it, you, you talk about careers going full circle, you talk about being an auditor there and some of the companies you were auditor to and, and for people who aren't familiar with auditors there's obviously different levels, there's senior auditors, there's junior auditors and they can often be not necessarily welcome in companies when they arrive. Uh, and I've dealt with them myself in various places I've worked. So auditors are kind of very much a necessary evil as far as a lot of people are concerned. And they they often poke around things that people would prefer they didn't poke around. But it, it's very paper-based and it has been very paper-based for, for many years. I, I don't know, I'm not as familiar with the auditing practices of today as much, but did, did you even find at that stage that you were kind of surprised at how unautomated it all was or is that just the the nature of the beast in other words if the company you're auditing has a certain system you're kind of stuck with that system because you know you may be just passing through if you're an external auditor maybe twice a year or whatever so so was it were you surprised when you went into all these big plcs and quoted companies
1: that uh, what you found there well, it, it was quite manual, and probably the um, the auditing firm was was more uh, manual and paper based than many of their clients at that point. This would have been nineteen ninety when I when I started uh, auditing, um, and they certainly weren't at the at the you know at the cutting edge of of technology uh, at, at that point. And. Technolo- technological change has been very slow for the auditing firms. They are now uh, starting to um, really get geared up on on the technological front. Um, you know, they have automated a, a lot of their uh, work papers and uh, the kind of tests they do. They also nowadays, which had started in my time, but has really accelerated now, they audit um using the computer systems that their clients have rather than just auditing around them um which would have been the uh, the the way they did it uh, uh back then so it, it was great to get experience of uh all the different systems that you would see in in the clients that uh Ernst & Young had back then it it was great to um uh, see how all the information flowed through uh, the systems. Um, and, and I was very grateful for that experience. But I guess I, I, d- I had never really planned that I would stay in accounting practice. Um, so um, I, I, did, I did move on from Ernst & Young at the end of my uh, uh, training contract with them when I become a Chartered Accountant.
0: Yes, and, and let's talk a little bit about accounting as a profession, because we we will have a lot of people who aren't accountants, non-accountants, civilians listening in who who haven't accounted or have worked alongside them but don't know the, the core elements of the whole profession. I suppose that there's the easier part, which is the recording and measurement of financial transactions, and then there's the more interesting part, I suppose, which is the interpretation and use of the information and how, as you said, it flows around an organization. I suppose the thing that's worth saying from the start is that accounting generally, and certainly in terms of financial statements, is historical by definition. So I used to have people who weren't accountants used to say to me, but I don't want to read a set of accounts because that'll only tell me what happened last year or it'll only tell me what happened six months ago. I want to know what's happening today. So there's always been that tension between getting things recorded, but not being so far back in the business cycle of a company that you, you kind of aren't learning a whole lot. And, and some of your, your work is kind of tackling that, but we'll, we'll come on to that in a second. But in terms of accounting problems that you find interesting, it's a social science accounting. So when you look at accounting, what parts of it are you drawn to and which parts do you sort of say, well, I can leave that out a bit. It's not as exciting to me.
1: Well, as you say, I mean, the things that I'm really interested in is how you can use accounting information to make decisions and to get insights into what's actually happening inside a company. You think of lots of big companies like CRH or Smurfit Kappa, and, and they have to summarize all of their operations for a year into, you know, uh, two or three pages of an income statement, a balance sheet and a cash flow statement. And that's, that is a, is a a huge measurement problem to take all the transactions and events that happen in a year and and, and stuff them into that kind of, um, that kind of summarized and aggregated uh, format. And then, as you say, the really interesting thing is how do you get information back out of that uh, again? Um, and, and I teach financial statement analysis to our, our third year BCOM students, and that's exactly what we do there. We kind of reverse engineer the accounts, you know, we look at, exactly what their accounting policies are and what implications that has for the um, uh, for the information that you're shown in the income statement and uh, a balance sheet um, and all I mean what makes this much more complicated is that accounting is also a social science people have incentives how things are measured makes a difference to people's pay packets. It makes a difference to the valuation of their companies. It might make a difference to whether the company continues in existence or goes out of, of business, uh, whether they get a bank loan or they don't get a bank loan. So um, it's, it's not like measuring something physical like, uh, you know, kilograms or kilometers. Um, uh, th- there is a layer of complexity here where the things that are being measured matter to people um, and they also have a role in how the things are measured. So there's a kind of a feedback there. And I think that's what makes it really interesting. Uh, I remember picking up a book uh, uh, when I was a a student um, uh, called Creative Accounting uh, by an analyst called Terry Smith. This is way back. Um, and he really opened my eyes to the way accounting can be used to, you know, change or bias a message that's been sent out from companies. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that I find fascinating. And uh, there's a lot of accounting research, uh, my own research and other people's research that focus on, on how that, that message is changed by the incentives people have.
0: Now, technology and the way it interfaces with the accountancy profession and the practices of accountancy is a lot of what's driving the profession these days. We hear this constant catch cry or drumbeat almost that AI tools will almost make large segments of accountancy redundant. And we don't have time to go into all of that, but you do hear this regularly, that anything that's sort of automatable, um, any of those rote tasks that can be kind of transformed and reconfigured, and technology can take up the slack that, that those pieces will, will come out of the profession, but they will be replaced and it will al- allow the profession to pursue more value-oriented activities. And I suppose that's a good thing. But for for those of us listening who are not accountants, just give us an idea, John, of how technology is contributing to the evolution of the profession now. You have so many business planning resource tools, digitization all sorts of different ways of managing data. There's just banks of the stuff everywhere now when you go into companies. Just give us an idea or maybe a kind of a sketch out the sort of the modern environment of accounting and how it interacts with technology.
1: Most companies now have very sophisticated, as you say, enterprise resource planning systems, and they've basically digitized all of their internal information within the company. And In many ways, that work is pretty much complete. You know, they have integrated their HR system with their production system, with their financial system, with their accounting system. And and all this information is stored in in, uh, what are called relational databases that allow them to pull out whatever information they need at whatever time. And that enables analysis and, um, you know, the production of reports that was never possible uh, before. And uh, I mean, this this is changing the kind of work that accountants do, because a lot of, you know, that that um, uh, report uh, production would have been at least partly manual in the past. So that that part is is becoming um, uh, almost automatic. Just push a button for it. But there are other parts They are Accountants are moving up the value chain and um, uh, as you say, introducing things like uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning to the data that's been collected in inside these these huge systems, uh, and that is what is driving, uh, I think, um, uh, innovation within companies. Uh, they're they're getting much better. Uh, insights into what their data means because of these kind of technologies.
0: Now, you strike me as a guy, you've mentioned two books you picked up already, and you were mentioning they were both ahead of their time when you were reading them. So you do seem to be someone that stays ahead of developments in in your area a lot. And we've all been, I suppose, immersed in the world of cryptocurrencies in recent years. Some people, because they like to speculate on them and, and don't necessarily have a whole lot of interest in the underlying technology, Others don't speculate them, but are actually interested in the underlying technology. So there, there are different people involved in this area. But you, you were looking at Bitcoin and things like that and blockchain, which is the underpinning technology, um, or at least related to it. What, what came out of that and how did you first get in, involved in looking at kind of cryptocurrencies and think to yourself, oh, there might be something here that could help some of my own work?
1: Well, in about 2014, 2015, uh, some colleagues of mine in the Management Information Systems Department, uh, Professor Donica Kavanagh and Gianluca, Gianluca Missioni started talking about Bitcoin and, and I became interested in this. They started a research project called Coding Value. Um, I had been reading some material on a more conventional type type of money, which is another story entirely. But it got me interested in, in, in Bitcoin. When I looked into it, the thing that interested me most was actually the technology behind Bitcoin as opposed to uh, it, it as a, a cryptocurrency. And I know a lot of people are, are interested in, in it as a cryptocurrency. But I was interested in blockchains, which are the technology that drive um, that drive uh, Bitcoin. And, and most of the other uh, cryptocurrencies as well.
0: And just to stop you there, because I've had at least five guests on who have tried valiantly to summarise the meaning of blockchain, but I think you might have it because um, we had a little conversation before the uh, before this podcast began, and you managed to break it down to one sentence, which is very impressive. So do you want to give us our listeners <laughs> a take on that?
1: Okay. Well, I, I mean, uh, there's there's a. a, a A German academic, Roman Beck, who says that blockchains are for systems that everybody needs, but no one should own. So these are systems that, you know, aggregate some kind of critical or important information uh, and maybe allow us to to have transactions on those systems, but are not owned by, you know, either the government or a group of, of people. And I, I guess that's for me, that's the key thing that there isn't a central controller and, and how they work is a, a blockchain is in its essence, very simple. It's just a computer file It sits on your computer. The difference between, you know, so something like it and a Word file or an Excel file is that it sits on lots of other people's computers as well. And these are called nodes. Um, uh, so that's called a distributed uh, computer system. The key thing that is that all the nodes agree to update the file and make changes to the file in a process called mining. Um, and they have a, a prearranged agreement that they, will, that they will do this in a certain fashion. And that is when a node manages to solve a, a, a hard mathematical problem, it kind of wins the right to update the blockchain and it in this process it also kind of generates cryptographic glue that sticks the blockchain together. Um and, and it's very hard to pull it asunder or fake um uh the the progress of the blockchain in the past. Um so all of this means you don't need a central controller. You agree how the blockchain is going to work in advance. And because of this mining process, everybody's got to stick to um uh, the, the, the rules that have been outlined and nobody can uh cheat, hopefully. Um and and really the big innovation is nobody owns it. Um it, it the nodes all have an economic incentive to keep it running. And it kind of, you know, exists in thin air. Uh, And in many ways, the the real miracle is that blockchains like Bitcoin have kept working now for for more than 10 years.
0: I suppose for people who don't follow it closely, they might not realize that Bitcoin is is limited. There's only a certain amount of Bitcoins out there. So these blockchains are, it's kind of like um, locking in a set of rules or conventions from the start and whether people like them or don't like them, they're, they're kind of there. And then you, you, you sort of have to work within that, that set of, what would you call, collective rules for all the users. Is that, is that a fair way of putting it?
1: Yeah, no, that's very accurate. Yeah, um, uh, they're, they're, the rules are set out in advance before the blockchain starts. And everybody that participates in the blockchain has to keep to those rules. And because the mining process is essentially what keeps everybody um, uh, keeps everybody straight, and there are rewards to the mining process, so it is in the node's interest to keep things straight. Uh, so it's a very clever system um, that uh, was was developed by this this fictional Japanese person Nakamoto, and uh, you know it's just amazing that that the thing functions, but it does, it does, and and people predicted that it wouldn't and that it would fail and all the rest of it, and certain blockchains, of course, have failed. But the, the, the big one, Bitcoin, has continued to function with, with some, you know, bumps in the road. But it has, in general, continued to function.
0: So you got interested in this stuff. You started kind of playing around with it a little bit. And, and you wouldn't be the only one, right? So it's, it's a kind of a global community. There, there are thousands of people involved in blockchain. But what you've managed to do is try to apply that. Or see can it be used or deployed in the area of accountancy and auditing and so on. And when you started doing that, did you find that there was less kind of work done in that area or was there already people putting those two worlds together? Like when you first started you learned your blockchain, you got into it, you saw its possibilities when you got to the stage of saying, well, how could I use this in auditing or accountancy? Was there many people doing that sort of stuff when you, when you happened upon that area?
1: There were some people who were making suggestions in that area, uh, but in general, though, there wasn't much research attention uh, on it. Uh, I guess blockchains are often called a ledger. So that, that, that kind of is fascinating to accounting people as to uh, whether it's like an accounting uh, ledger or, or not um and and people were discussing that in in general terms how blockchains could be used um in in my own research i tried to focus in on a, a specific application and kind of take that as far as i could uh which was probably a bit different than what other people were doing who who were who were discussing in general how how blockchains uh could be used and the specific application was to uh, an auditing process that you might be familiar with um, called uh, confirming uh, receivables balances, which means uh, each company um, has a a number of people who owe it money or a number of other companies who owe it money. And the auditors need to confirm this at the end of a financial year. And um, I I used a a blockchain or I I developed, uh, designed a system where you could use a blockchain and uh, some uh, cryptography, which is called multi-party um, uh, security, in order to share the information between the company and all the people that owe it money without disclosing that information. Um, so it's, it's a privacy preserving uh, system. And I, I guess what I was aiming to do was to try and develop a digital version of what auditors do in the real world. And yes. I was probably, you know, 80% successful in that. But uh, um, uh, it uh, it still shows possibilities, I think, of what, what could happen.
0: And in terms of what, what you're trying to achieve is you're, you're trying to get different parties to see the same data. Is, is that what it is? Or is it slightly uh, encrypted data? Like, are, are they looking at exactly the same thing? Or is it slightly different what they're looking at?
1: for that particular application, the company should should have the same record as the person who owes it money. So the company should say, oh, this this other company owes us €10,000 and the other company should say, yes, uh, we owe them 10000 uh, euro." And the way it works is that um, uh, both of the parties uh, load up encrypted data onto the blockchain and we can compare the encrypted data without knowing what's inside but what we do find out is that what's inside is the same it's a whole set of techniques called privacy preserving analytics or um, which use cryptography to uh, allow you to uh, enter data into a system in an encrypted way but then it can be used in calculations within that system, even though it's never fully unencrypted.
0: It's a little bit like sharing a black box, the same black box. Everyone's using the same black box, but they don't necessarily see the contents inside. But the fact that the box is the same is almost the benefit.
1: Exactly. It's it's like, uh, you know, you have a stack of sealed envelopes with, you know, values written inside them. And uh, by the by the magic of cryptography, you can you can add in, add up what's in the sealed envelopes without ever opening the envelopes.
0: It, it, it sounds like it has huge potential. I mean, do, you, do, the two, do the two parties involved have to be at the same technical proficiency level or do they have to have the same IT infrastructure to kind of talk the same language and use the same blockchains or, or, or can you just give them all that stuff? Like in other words, I'm thinking of smaller companies that mightn't be at this level or it, it, does that matter one way or the other?
1: Oh, it matters all right, you yeah, know, they'd all have to abide by the same protocol of encrypting the data. I think realistically, uh, this is very early research on this. Um, realistically, later on, uh, accountancy software providers would have to incorporate this into their systems so that um, uh, all this could be done automatically. I mean, it's similar to when you, when you go into a web browser, If you see the little lock icon at the top, you know, you are you are then uh, communicating securely with with the server. Um, And all of that is done, you know, uh, behind the scenes. You don't you don't know what kind of encryption is used or whatever. And this would be a similar system that would be pretty much transparent to the users um and and all the encryption would be happening automatically behind the scenes
0: now there's so many different transactions that a company's involved in so obviously the world is your oyster to some degree uh, where where you might deploy this but i I think from my understanding is you're looking at vat in particular as probably a a, a very uh, fruitful area of transactions at least initially that 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 could be the one where where the, the richest potential is
1: well well that's that's the one that um uh, was awarded the nova innovation uh, uh prize and uh i'm very grateful to nova for all their help in in you know helping me to develop this and i'm grateful that gcd has uh, such a great uh innovation central like uh, nova um and and uh, it was great to be at the prize giving the other evening when when we saw all the other um Award winners who, who, you know, you're humbled really to see the innovations they're making in um, renewable energy, sustainability, medical technology and e-learning. And you're right. uh, VAT is one application I've picked out where um, uh, companies could load up their uh, VAT uh, returns essentially in an encrypted format and you could check that. Uh, the VAT returns make sense and the correct payments have been made without um, actually disclosing the values behind the transactions. Uh, And the innovation here has been to kind of provide a design that fits in with the kind of cryptography and the information flows that are required here. Um, And uh, hopefully we'll be able to develop this further and, and maybe um, commercialise it down the, down the road, um, but certainly in the EU there's a gap uh, of of VAT being collected of about 150 billion. Uh, right. So any any contribution we can make to uh, reducing that uh, would you know really help governments um, uh, governments finances and, and, and uh, uh, the balancing the budget. Because a lot of that goes, goes missing in the current kind of more manual system of collecting information about it.
0: And in terms of the, the practitioner, John, then the, the actual accountancy, auditor, or even, dare I say, the, the internal person, the, the chief financial officer and their team. I mean, it, 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 those of them who are listening to us, you know, what, what does it mean? What might it mean for them if the technology gets rolled out in coming years and it kind of spreads around? What, what would it look like from their point of view? I'm presuming... Verification obviously improves, but do do things become more efficient? Do they get their work done quicker and allow them to move on to more high value work? What's the sell from a practitioner point of view?
1: Well, I suppose, I mean, where I come at it from is actually a more societal point of view than a practitioner point of view. I'm interested in the systems that, you know, make sure that the information coming out of business. Um, is um, valid and useful for society for making uh, decisions about. Um, uh, I, I think what the practitioners are going to see is they're going to see more artificial intelligence and machine learning, as you mentioned before, uh, which is maybe not exactly what I'm talking about. The, the systems that I'm talking about will be more, um, you know, um Communication between the, them and their customers, uh, and uh, between groups of companies who want to to do something or to build a system that shares some kind of information, uh, those are the kind of systems I think that 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 I'll be involved in, rather than the internal systems where they uh, they've already got you know seen huge improvements and efficiencies, and I think as they. As they go up the value chain and build more AI and machine learning into those systems, they'll they'll see even even more advances with that. And I, I'm also involved in that, but that's that's not the the focus of 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 this um of this work.
0: I mean, ultimately, the the quality of the information, the financial information, this will will raise it up another level. Isn't that that's the ultimate benefit that's,
1: for everybody? That is what what I'm after, and and I think that's. You know, that's the role of academics like myself is to think about these systems um, that are going to be used by regulators and and companies, um, uh, because you know our financial markets the are, are are not not in a brilliant state. Uh, to be honest, I mean uh, the students laugh at me because I'm obsessed with the financial crisis. And, and, you know, most of them were about two or three at the time. that this <laughs> Well,
0: well me, me, meet your sidekick. So am I from a different point of view. But yes, I, I, I bore people regularly with various stories from that period. And what happened that didn't happen, you know. So uh, it's it's not unusual to me. But yes, I understand. others. <laughs> well,
1: and I, I bore people with this because I'm obsessed with this idea that that we have to have good information about companies, what risks are being created in the economy, um, and how we monitor and control those risks, and I think you know we're kind of in a way losing the arms race there. Um, uh, uh, regulators seem powerless against against huge companies that uh, have you know their tentacles all over the place, uh, and and we need better systems to make sure that the 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 quality of the information coming out of the financial system is good enough that we can uh we can monitor and control what's going on and that's good for business as well the last thing business needs um is 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 a, a financial system that is, is not sustainable and where you know credit dries up and all these all these bad effects of of poor um information coming out of it so so that's that's more my um uh direction than, than actually the internal information that companies are generating for themselves.
0: And John, we're running out of time, unfortunately, you've really delved us into a fascinating area, so I, I'm feeling a little bit guilty cutting you short here. But in terms of where this goes from here, you've obviously come up with these cryptographic systems and you've given a, a sort of a set of technology or approaches uh, uh, to the Nova community and so on you mentioned commercialization and so on, like do, do you is, is your plan to sort of hand it over to others to commercialize now? Or are you intending to be involved in that as well? Or are you going to work away on on refining this stuff even further? what's it, What's your plan with all of this? where Where can it go from
1: here? Well, I suppose we'll we'll be trying to interest uh, companies in 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 commercializing uh, these ideas um uh some of them are for regulatory use and 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 you know they're they're going to be published in in academic papers and they will be free for for anybody to use um uh, and then other other ones are probably going to need more development um and 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 will be quite complex in that they'll need you know software development and as we said earlier um accounting software providers would have to build them into their products and a, a lot of things would have to happen there. So I think um, we'll be trying to interest uh, companies in in uh, consultancy companies in in taking those ideas forward. I hope to be involved. I think there's a lot of scope for um, uh, more ideas as well on 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 these these systems. Um, I guess one of the problems is that y- you have academic cryptographers who are interested in the cryptography. You've got um, uh, practitioners who are interested in information systems and things like that and and this is kind of in between all that to try and try and get these people together and get them uh, thinking about uh, actual real systems and how they would work.
0: Well long may your idea generation continue in whatever capacity you're involved uh, it, it's great to see some fresh ideas coming into sometimes or can as I said at the introduction can appear from the outside as a static Kind of accountancy world, so it's fantastic to see this kind of stuff coming through, and that the dialogue is going to now go on with the the various companies, the providers, the consultancies, and so on. Like there, there's a really vibrant community; they're always looking for the latest thing. So I, I think you'll find a, a reasonably receptive audience. So well done on the award, well done on the work. Um, you've managed also to define a few tricky terms in short, digestible chunks, which is a fantastic achievement in itself. Because we we've, we've touched on some of these topics before on this podcast and. It's not easy terrain for those uninitiated to it. So thank you very much for that. It's been an interesting conversation and I'm sure we'll talk to you again as this whole world develops further. Thank you, John McCallag, assistant professor here at the UCD College of Business.
1: Thank you, Emmett.
0: Now, if you enjoyed this week's episode of the UCD Business Impact Podcast, please subscribe to episodes on Apple Podcast. Our Spotify. We cover a broad range of topics with insights from business leaders around the world, so there's sure to be something there for everyone. I'd like to thank our production team of David Kors-Cadden, Ed Gormley, and Mike Liffey. They work tirelessly in the background sourcing interviewees, editing, promoting episodes, and everything in between. I've been your host, Emmett Oliver, and we hope you can join us next time on UCD Business Impact.